This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. We're looking this morning at verses 36 through 56. While you're turning there, just a couple of things. Uh, one, a big thank you to those who were here yesterday for the work day. Uh, they, they got uh, several things done uh, that you may have noticed. One, the sign is back up. The sign is up as a semi-temporary sign. Uh, with part of the new construction with the addition, uh, the new building, what we want to do is, is get a new and permanent sign out there, but obviously we don't want to wait several years before we have a sign in front of the building. So the uh, plan is to, as we did yesterday, to get the new one, the old one back up and then plant some shrubs around it, try to dress it up, but then look toward getting a, a more permanent, good-looking sign out front. Um, also, the lights, you'll notice. Um, the pianists are probably especially happy to have a light over the piano there, um, replacing a couple of lights. It's not as easy as it seems. Those are difficult lights not only to replace, but apparently to find. Uh, so uh, we're thankful to those who came out and worked yesterday, got several things done around here needed to be done. The other thing is, Mike was mentioning beginning a new church year tonight with the Sunday night programs, but I want to invite you to come as well to the uh, to the service. We're going to take a break from Jeremiah and be looking at some different texts, different themes on Sunday nights this fall. Uh, tonight we're looking at Psalm 32, a psalm of David uh, that describes his own experience of moving from a position of crushing guilt to abounding joy. And so I hope you'll come out tonight to study God's Word, to pray together, to worship the Lord together. This morning, we are looking at Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Hear the Word of the Lord. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. 
and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. He came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Then Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? That hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God and pray this morning as we study it that your spirit would lead us. Father, we give thanks to you for this word and for these incidents that happened in the life of our Lord Jesus that happened to the disciples, that happened at a real place, real time, involving real people. Father, we pray that we might learn from this text what you would have us to learn. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Gethsemane, the name means oil press. It was named that because of the olive groves that were in that area on the western bank of the sort of side of the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley to the east of Jerusalem. And after Jesus and his disciples had left the upper room, after they had gone out through the gates of the city, they headed out to the east along the road that went through the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, apparently this was a place that Jesus frequently went with his disciples where they spent time. Uh, it probably also was a place, given the Passover, that was full of other people who were there uh, at the city for the Passover and for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, basically camping out in uh, the garden and the, the, the groves there on the side of the hill. Well, as we look at this passage, we read how Jesus went out, uh, the disciples declaring their loyalty to Jesus, loyalty, if need be, even to death itself. And we read in verse 36, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And as we read Matthew's account of Gethsemane, he focuses on two events, essentially, that happened in the life of Jesus that took place there in the garden. And as we study the passage this morning, we want to look at those two events. First of all, was Jesus' anguish there in prayer. Look at verse 36. Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, he was speaking to the majority of them, but he also, in verse 37, takes with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee who went along with him. Sometimes it's wondered, how did, how did Matthew know what Jesus prayed? Well, 
couple of suggestions for that. Jesus may have described what he prayed after the resurrection, but it's also possible that uh, Peter and James and John were within hearing distance of Jesus and could have heard some, if not all, of what Jesus prayed, at least while they were still awake. Uh, it's also worth noting that Jesus prayed much more than was recorded here because of the time apparently that passed in prayer. But what Matthew records is the sum of it, is, is the essence of what Jesus was praying at that time. But in this first passage, verses 36 through 46, uh, the focus is on Jesus' anguish, what he experienced in that time. It came through in his prayer. Jesus said, sit here while I go over there and pray, and took Peter and James and John with him. And it says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus had mentioned the things that were going to happen, but he did so in a matter-of-fact way. But now, here in the garden, here in the shadow of the cross, the reality of what he was about to endure came crashing down on him. It's as if you know something that's coming up in the future, something unpleasant, something you don't look forward to, maybe something like surgery or maybe a tough exam that's coming up. And while it's weeks away, you know it's coming, and it's out there, it's on the calendar, it's in the back of your mind, but you don't really think a lot about it. But the night before, you start thinking a lot about it, either in study and preparation or in uh, getting ready to... Uh, undergo surgery the next day. Well, of course, this was a far, far greater test and trial than any of those things. And Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Uh, in English, the word really uh, doesn't quite express the depth of that. It, it says he, he was pushed to extremity. And Jesus himself says that. Verse 38, to his disciples, to the three, he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. This anxiety, this, this, this troubled spirit I have is so great, it's almost as though it's going to kill me itself. Remain here and watch with me. You think, well, why was Jesus so afraid? You know, after all, over the centuries since this time, so many of his own followers have faced suffering, even death, with what seems to be greater bravery than that of Jesus. There's a reason for that. Jesus' followers who faced death in his name did so knowing that in the blink of an eye they would be in the presence of Jesus. The pain would be gone. Jesus what, uh, faced what he was facing with the knowledge that he would not immediately pass into glory, but into hell. In fact, while he was on the cross, enduring hell itself, the judgment of God. For everyone who would ever believe in him. An eternity's worth of God's judgment per person. Is it any wonder that Jesus was, as he says here, sorrowful even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. When we're looking at Jesus' prayer here, we see this petition. What is he praying for? Jesus says, if it is possible, if there is some other way to accomplish salvation apart from this suffering and this death on the cross, let it be so. 
Jesus was not wavering on the plan. When he says, if it is possible, in one sense, of course it was possible for him to escape this. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, if it is possible to accomplish the redemption of my people apart from the cross, let it be so. Because he recognized what that would entail. How glibly we speak of the cross of Jesus when Jesus himself, the Son of God, prayed that if there were any possible way your salvation and mine could be accomplished, let it come about. You know, as we hear Jesus' words here, they impress on us the reality of the horror of the cross. Not just physically, and it was certainly horrible physically, but the reality spiritually that Jesus was going to endure, and a reality that he did endure for you and for me. Again, in verse 40, he says, Uh, Or verse 42, it says he went for the second time and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, this cup of God's wrath, that that image from the Old Testament, like a a bitter, a cup of bitter liquid to drink. If, if, If this can't happen unless I drink it, your will be done. And he went away and prayed again a third time, similarly, saying the same thing in essence. So we see his petition, but we also see his submission. In verse 39, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, your will be done. The third time, we would assume he said the same thing. Nevertheless, not what I want, Father, but what you want. May your will be done. So you see his prayer, the anguish of it, the fervency of it, but you also see his submission. I remember in college, someone saying, we shouldn't pray that. We shouldn't pray your will be done. We We should pray boldly and confidently, and that sounds diffident and hesitating. I could not disagree more. One thing, anytime we pray to God, suggesting something to God that should be done, we should be diffident. We should be hesitant. We should always defer to the will of our Heavenly Father. After all, of His own Son, the second person of the Trinity would do that and did do that throughout His life. How much more should you and I offer our petitions to God with some measure of hesitation and absolute deference to the good and perfect will of our Heavenly Father. But you see his prayer, but you also see his submission. There was never any question in Jesus' mind that if the cross was the only way to accomplish salvation, that is what he would do. Nevertheless, at this last moment, before it began, he said, Father, if there is any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So you see Jesus' anguish here at the prospect of, about, of what he is about to endure. But that anguish was aggravated, perhaps, by his loneliness. You know, he was with his disciples. He spent that last night with his closest earthly companions, one of whom was already betraying him. The others went with him into the garden, and he left some of them and encouraged them to watch with him. And then he took his three closest companions out of the twelve to be near to him. And he says to them, watch with me. Remain here and watch with me. And he comes back to them after praying and he finds them sleeping. Resting, they've fallen asleep. And notice what Jesus says in verse 40. So, did you not watch with me one hour? Now, when he says watch, I don't think he means stand guard. He means... Pray means 
watch spiritually as he clarifies here. By the way, notice for Jesus, an hour in prayer isn't much. You know, you may have prayed for an hour and think, what a saint of God am I? What, a, what you know, has there ever been one such as I prayed for an entire hour? And Jesus says of his disciples, could you not watch with me? Could you not pray with me for one hour? I mean, as, as if that's the ABCs, that's just the beginning. I mean, we read of Jesus spending entire nights in prayer. So not only did he pray, I mean, he didn't fall asleep, which can be hard to do. Just just one hour, just 60 minutes. Could you not watch with me one hour? And then he clarifies, verse 40, watch and pray with me that you may not enter into temptation. Now, remember, he's already declared to them what they're going to do, how they're going to fall away, the, the trial they're about to endure. And Jesus says, you need to be watching. You need to be on your guard. You need to be praying so that you don't fall into temptation. Temptation to what? Temptation to do exactly what they did. You know, what a lesson this is to us, particularly facing something we know is going to be difficult. To be in prayer. To be with the Lord. To be watching. To be praying. All with a submissive attitude to the will of our Father. They're sleepy. He admonishes the disciples. Uh, But that just adds to what undoubtedly was the isolation that he felt at that time. These he was counting on to be with him, to pray with him, are falling asleep and resting. And so we see the anguish of our Lord Jesus. Other gospel writers tell us that sweat fell from his brow like great drops of blood. It gives you some idea of the extremity of what he was going through. He anticipated the cross. But then it moves on to his arrest. Uh, Verse 45, he comes to the disciples, sleep, take your rest later. The hour is at hand. His hour has not come. His hour has not come. Well, the hour now is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed, not will be, but is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so with verse 47 through 56, we have the account of his arrest. Essentially, the focus is on three people or groups. Uh, The first is Judas. We read verse 47. While he was still saying that, Judas arrives, ironically stated, one of the twelve, factual, but no doubt some irony in that, with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. The fact that there were swords present indicates there probably were some Roman soldiers present, uh, given the nature of the crowd in Jerusalem for Passover, uh, it would not be surprising that uh, they might have a few Roman soldiers with them. All they needed to do was say they thought perhaps there might be some sort of revolt uh, in in the making, and uh, no doubt Pilate would be happy to supply some soldiers in order to maintain the peace, especially during the volatile time of Passover. And so Judas comes and he's leading a crowd. And notice we go from Judas, one of the twelve, to verse 48, just the betrayer. The betrayer had given them a sign, saying, When I kiss is the man, seize him. Now, in light of what Jesus said about teaching and being there, you might think, well, why, why would they need someone to point Jesus out? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Remember, this was well, well before the day of photographs. Uh, people often didn't know what someone looked like that they may have heard a great deal about. And even if they'd seen him once, 
they may not have seen him again, and the, the image of his face may have faded. They may have had trouble pointing him out in a crowd. Plus, it was night. It was dark. Some have suggested Judas actually led this group to the upper room, and finding no one there sort of guessed where Jesus might have gone with his disciples, since uh, the garden was apparently a place they frequented, and uh, they went from the upper room out to the Garden of Gethsemane in search of Jesus. But it was dark also. Of course, Jesus was uh, accompanied by the disciples, but it's also possible, as we said, that there were others in the garden in that area camping there for the night, uh, there in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so Judas, of course, would know Jesus well and would have no trouble picking him out among his disciples. And so he comes and perhaps the greatest irony of all hands him over with a kiss, a sign of affection perverted into a sign of betrayal. He says, greetings, Rabbi. Again, not Lord. Remember in the upper room, the others were saying, is it I, Lord, who will betray you? And Judas says, is it I, Rabbi, teacher? And here again, greetings, teacher. A bit of a distant greeting, but Jesus returns the favor. Friend, which is a courtesy, but not exactly committing himself. It itself distances just a bit. Friend, do what you have come for. Remember, Jesus had told Judas, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Well, here he says, friend, do what you came for. Let's just skip the, the niceties. Let's get this going. They came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Well, now the focus shifts from Judas to Peter. We read in verse 51, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew a sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, John tells us that it was Peter who did this. Now, remember, Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you, will not uh, fall away from you. And it may well be Peter thought this was the moment. You know, here, here the battle begins and pulls out his sword and with great skill clumsily lops off the ear of the high priest, who John tells us name was Malchus. We don't know if he was swinging for the neck, trying to behead him or just bringing it down as hard as he could, manages to take the poor guy's ear off. Uh, which we're told in the other Gospels that Jesus took the ear and healed him and attached his ear, healed his ear, the servant of the high priest. But Jesus rebukes Peter. Verse 52 says, Put your sword away, back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus is not making an argument for pacifism here. He's simply saying that violence tends to beget violence, and that's not what we're about here, as he makes clear. But he also says in verse 53, Do you think I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. Peter, don't forget that you yourself said, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't forget who I am. We don't need to fight. If I wanted to stop this, I could appeal to my father. And he would send 72,000 of his best angels we don't know why Jesus says 12 legions of angels. A legion, a full complement legion, Roman legion would be about 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus is basically saying, you know, at once I could appeal to my father and with overwhelming force this would be ended. But that's not the point. Jesus says, verse 54, but then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? No, 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 Peter. We're not here to fight. This is the plan. And then he speaks to the crowds, Judas, Peter, and then the crowds. Verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, 
Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Jesus says, after all, you know, why, why this? I was with you in the temple every day, teaching, preaching, present there. You could have taken me any time. What's he doing? Well, in a sense, he's pointing out their cowardice, their lack of conviction, and that they come under the cover of night when they could have taken Jesus at any time. And they know that. And that, that had to have hurt. That had to have stung a little bit. Jesus is basically calling them cowards. You didn't seize me then, but he says all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Twice, Jesus mentions the fulfillment of the plan of God, foretold much earlier that this is how it had to happen. But then we read, as they take Jesus as he is arrested, all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus was right. As he said back earlier in verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You know, as we look at this passage, it is fascinating to see both Jesus shrinking from the cross, but his absolute commitment to it. Why? The scriptures tell us, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. Well, the joy set before him, what joy? Well, the joy of having accomplished the will of his Father, because it was Jesus' delight to obey the will of his Father. But also, for the joy set before him of one day, the wedding feast of the Lamb, having a great multitude that nobody can number with him there to celebrate the renewal of all things. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Glorify His Father first. But so that you and I and everyone who believes in Him could be there to celebrate and rejoice with Him. Our attitude should be the same. Whatever it might be that the Lord leads us into in this life that's difficult, that's hard, that's painful, we do look at that, but we look beyond that. Just as Jesus looked beyond the cross and was therefore able to endure the cross. So that you and I could be with Him in glory. And so we endure whatever the Lord brings into our life, whatever pain that might involve. We might pray for its removal, but we always say, Thy will, not mine, be done. For the joy of being with Christ in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Father, thank you for the glimpse of Jesus' heart that it gives us. Father, we see his true humanity. Who would not shrink back from what he was about to endure, even just the the physical side of it, let alone the spiritual, to be the sin bearer. Father, we thank you that Jesus was willing to go through with his crucifixion, with being the Lamb of God. We thank you, Father, and we will thank you because he did it. We will thank you for all eternity. And we pray in his name. Amen.